Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. Layton's doing work behind the scenes, as always, this week. Coming up on this week's episode, we'll be joined by Chris Lentges. He's the CEO of U.S. Operations for Aurora. Chris will talk about current state of U.S. retail supply chains, as well as the current state of importation and exportation of products. He'll talk about the ways in which technology is making retailers' lives easier, and he'll talk about the importance of balancing ports and port projections as well for U.S. retailers. In news, Sprouts Farmers Market gives us earnings that slightly beat analyst expectations, but not all good news, certainly, for Sprouts. And we'll look ahead to Spartan Nash, but more importantly, their wholesale sales and maybe some positive news on the supply chain front for distributors. A quick reminder that you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. We're posting some pictures of the Bass Pro Shops flagship location at Springfield, Missouri, as they get ready for the holiday season. All right, so let's dive into Sprouts. As I mentioned, they beat analyst expectations Their organizational direction, if you haven't followed this company closely over the last five to ten years, it's been defined by fairly rapid unit growth as they continue to enter new markets throughout the U.S. They've taken kind of the direction of entering markets and then spreading in that given market and making sure that they're at least somewhat saturated in markets before moving on rather than just opening one or two locations in a vast number of markets and then moving out geographically more quickly. So, As a result, maybe not as spread out as one would think geographically, but they do have fairly decent penetration in the markets where they have stores. For their third quarter, they enjoyed earnings of $0.61 per share versus analyst consensus expectations of $0.52 per share. But while their bottom line looked good versus expectations, their sales results lagged both inflation and the sales expectations of larger grocery retailers and those in the same sector, such as natural grocers. So let's get into the numbers. They saw net sales this past quarter of $1.6 billion, which is a 5% rise year over year. This was partially driven by those new openings, of which there was only one in the quarter, but 13 net openings since Q3 of last year. And then also partially by comps growing 2.4%. It's important to note that both the increase in net sales and the increase in comps outpaced their internal expectations, even if they didn't necessarily hold serve against competitors or inflation in those categories. They were expecting modest comp gains of 1% to 2%, but their outpacing of expectations this quarter led to an increase in their full-year guidance overall. Now, regarding competitors, Natural Grocers will release earnings next week, but they saw comps outgrow Sprouts in their most recent quarter, 2.5% to 2%, and they're also projecting slightly more than what Sprouts saw in this previous quarter. And then, of course, you look at a retailer like Kroger, who has a large amount of the naturals and organics market share in the U.S. They saw comps rise over 5% in the most recent quarter, and they're expecting rises of 4 to 5% in the current quarter. And then Spartan Nash, who doesn't really occupy the same space, they're more of a regional grocery chain, but even in their stores, they saw comps increase by 8%. So this gives you an idea of where Sprouts is falling in with regard to comp increases throughout the grocery industry. Now, regardless of competitor expectations, 
Comp sales gains for Sprouts, as I mentioned, lagged inflation in their main categories, happened to be HBA and grocery. And it lagged inflation by a decent margin, suggesting unit movement was down. And this was addressed by CEO Chip Malloy on the call, who said that ticket size was up despite the number of items in the basket being down. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Also, the fact that these comps came against the backdrop of a two-year stack for the third quarter over 2020 and 2021 that was negative on a per-store basis. Their two-year stack for the prior two years had combined to lose about 2% in terms of comp sales. So putting all that together, Sprout sales right now per store, roughly what they were in 2019. And that is a drastic difference for most grocers. So when you take the longitudinal angle at things, Sprouts has had a difficult couple of years after being one of the darlings of the grocery industry and certainly one of our favorite companies during the middle of the 2010s. If you did want to point to a positive for Sprouts, e-commerce sales were up 19%. And now sales that touch digital make up 11.1% of their total sales. As with some others in the natural and organic space other than Whole Foods, who of course has a pretty robust e-commerce platform, their e-commerce presence, talking about Sprouts here, isn't quite mature yet. So this is a pretty good sign for the retailer as they continue to build this part of their business out. But while this is good in theory, it did eat into the bottom line. It ate into margins. They sacrificed higher e-commerce fees in exchange for customer convenience. Credit card fees also rose for them with fewer shoppers electing for debit options. Part of this stems from that rise in e-commerce sales. And so you have customers, as Chris Lentjes will talk about a little later on here in the show, they want things fast, they want things free, they want things convenient. That does come at a cost for the retailer, and we see that eat away at the margins for Sprouts. Now, in-store, Deli and Ready to Eat was the top performer, and their internal data suggests that they were able to grow market share in grab-and-go in general. Behind Deli, Bakery, Grocery, Dairy, and Frozen were also the key positive performers on the sales front, and that suggests that HBA might be a bit of a struggle for them. It's likely that HBA comped out negative, although they didn't mention that category specifically on the call. One of the most interesting things they noted in general on the call is that they're not seeing a trade down currently. We've heard from many people expecting maybe a consumer trade down with inflationary pressures impacting pocketbooks, maybe opting for the store brand or the private label brand over the higher level name brand. But in Sprouts's case, their higher priced categories and their higher priced products are seeing the most growth. And in some cases, this has resulted in a trade of sorts, but usually the trade-off is fewer items in basket in exchange for being able to afford that higher priced item. On average, they say, their customers are putting one less item in their basket currently. And generally speaking, that one less item, that's a produce item, which Sprouts is also fine with because that category has both the lowest price points for Sprouts and is among the lower margin items in their store. But they are focused on reclaiming that extra item. They're not content losing that extra item to the customer. They want to maybe drive the customer to purchase that extra item through promotions and also improving their produce in stock position. They say that could also help them reclaim that one extra item. Overall, though, that trade-up effect that they're seeing, that may be a result of the customer base of Sprouts. You think back a few weeks ago, 
Rod Sides with Deloitte talked about the bifurcated nature of inflationary impacts on households currently. So it's entirely possible that due to Sprouts' customer base generally being a bit higher income than Walmart or Kroger, they're seeing less of a trade down because those customers, those customers at the higher end of the income bracket, are being least affected by inflationary impacts, at least as far as their grocery purchasing habits are concerned. And this was actually referenced on the call. CFO Jack Sinclair said that if there is a steeper economic downturn as far as Sprouts is concerned, they feel like their company is somewhat resistant because their customer base is often on a particular diet. Maybe you have keto or paleo or vegan. And that diet, that's unlikely to change in a recessionary climate. And to this point, they've noted their customer base has been rather sticky, as they said, through inflationary impacts over the past year. Basically, the customer is loath to leave Sprouts. They really like Sprouts' proposition. And so what they're doing is trading off by basically purchasing one fewer item, as we said. So the key to Sprouts' success really does center around the customer that they're already getting to shop in the stores to maybe just buy one or two more things. They are seeing that increase overall in ticket size, but they would like to move more units going forward. Now, looking at the fourth quarter, they expect reasonable comp sales growth right around 2% and in line with what they've seen so far this fiscal year. In looking forward, many of their new openings continue to be in the southwestern United States, including the four Q4 openings. They've opened several stores in Florida as well during this fiscal year. As you look into next year, they seek 30 new stores versus the 16 that they're expected to open for 2022. And while we are typically supportive of retailers that are seeking this brick-and-mortar growth, it's a bit worrisome that their focus is on expanding their store base by 8% this coming year when their existing stores aren't exactly killing it. And to this end, the phrase, control what we control, was mentioned often on the call and often in terms of their unit growth. And it almost seemed as though the indication was that their mission is to grow revenue based around these new stores, based around opening these new stores, which would be a controllable for them, versus driving sales to existing stores, which might be less controllable on Sprouts's front. Now, of course, we've talked about in the past on this show, retail history is littered with a number of companies that drove revenue only through expansion, neglected current stores, and suffered for it. I don't think that's necessarily the case here. Obviously, they are still worried about the current stores, but they are racing to try and open locations. Part of this is due to the reality that there's not a lot of great available real estate out there. So the sooner they look to open these locations, the sooner they can kind of stake their claim to what they're calling the main and main intersections, basically the intersections where they absolutely want to be in every market. And they did reference their desire as they set forth a few years ago to increase their store count by 10% each year. And they haven't made good on that lately due to pandemic effects, but they still want to build towards that goal. I mentioned around 30 new stores for next year. Their goal is for 40 plus stores to be added to their system in 2024. And the CFO, once again, Jack Sinclair, said that a new real estate tool they've begun using indicates white space for them of another 970 stores in the U.S. for 1,350 stores in the U.S. total. Now, for that to work, you're looking at white space 
currently in the U.S. And so in order to open these 970 new stores, you really have to beat other retailers to the punch and beat other grocers to the punch. And we've seen some pretty aggressive expansion plans from the likes of natural grocers, although Whole Foods Market, since Amazon's takeover of theirs, really kind of tailed back their expansion plans that we saw pre-Amazon takeover. So Sprouts looking to try and beat others to the punch, so to speak, and get into those important markets. Aside from straight-up location growth, Sprouts is seeking to build out their product sourcing platforms and their private label offers. And this is the last thing we'll talk about regarding Sprouts on this show. But like other retailers, they're desiring to build out their private label platform. We talked at length about Kroger and Albertson's private label platform over the past several months. Sprouts has themselves launched more than 400 private label products year to date. And one thing that they're proud of is the fact that they've doubled the number of local produce items in stores year over year. Overall, they anticipate 20% of their produce sales to be local by 2024. And I think this is important looking ahead because something we'll talk about in the looking ahead segment is the fact that distribution and supply chain appears as though it could be maybe a little bit rocky and maybe something that you can't control a lot of. Well, if you're Sprouts, you can help to control the supply chain and help to control supply chain costs, especially the cost of fuel if you source more products locally. So this is not just a PR move for Sprouts. This could well be a cost-cutting move for them as well as supply chain costs, generally speaking, continue to be a little bit more unpredictable. And it'll allow Sprouts to perhaps control more when looking at their bottom line. Additionally, Sprouts is internally making new investments on the sourcing front in their grocery category. They noted the launch of 300 first-to-market products year to date. And what they're doing for a lot of these products is they're not only the first to launch these products among grocers, but they're signing a lot of these producers to exclusivity deals, meaning that these products, after the initial launch, will be exclusive to Sprouts for a period of time before they can be rolled out to other retailers. So again, you're looking at Sprouts seeking a potential differentiator in the grocery space as a whole, and they're doing it through some of these exclusivity contracts that they're forging with the product producers. Regarding product sourcing, given the strength in Delhi and that pullback in produce we talked about by unit, they were actually asked on the call if they plan to change their model maybe to focus more on ready-to-eat foods. And all of the leadership on the call basically said flatly, no, they want to continue to be produce-focused. But also they said, look, the customer is demanding more ready-to-eat products, and we wouldn't be doing our job as a company if we didn't deliver on that for the customer. They do plan on meeting that demand going forward. Basically, they said in model and sourcing, it's not a zero-sum game for them. It's not either ready-to-eat or produce. They think they can bring both to the table, and they're really happy with the way their product sourcing is heading, heading into 2023. They feel as though they can mitigate costs somewhat, but also bring a little bit more of a proposition the customer is looking for going into the future. So I think maybe positives on the bottom line front, you still do worry about those comp sales maybe not going up as much as they are at other retailers, despite the fact that food inflation is affecting Sprouts just like it's affecting every other grocer out there. So plenty of good, plenty of bad on this earnings call for Sprouts. Kind of a mixed view, but we haven't talked about the Phoenix-based company in about 18 months on the show, so we wanted to give them their due 
on this week's episode. Now, coming up after this break, we'll be joined by Chris Lentges. Once again, he's the CEO of U.S. Operations for Aurora. We're going to talk about product logistics, the current state of supply chains for U.S. retailers as we head into the holiday season. We'll also talk about how the supply chain has adjusted for retailers over the course of the last five years and what Chris is most excited about as it pertains to supply chain and logistics and importation of product as we head into the next few years. Last year at this time, we were besieged with messages from retailers about supply chain issues. Much of this had to do with the process of bringing product to the U.S. from overseas. Delays and bottlenecks in source countries, port backups, and fights for freight space were all part of the regular dialogue 12 months ago. And to an extent, certain issues still remain as far as importing product. So to check in on the current state of imports as they pertain to retailers and see where things are at, this holiday season is Chris Lenches, the CEO of U.S. Operations for Aurora Solutions. Chris, welcome to the show. Trent, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to this. Now, first, just so our listeners kind of get a little bit of a background about your company, about what you do, what role does Aurora play in product logistics for retailers on the day-to-day? Yeah, good question. So let's start with who is Aurora, and then I think we can answer into Aurora's sort of value chain in the global supply chain. You know, Aurora is really reshaping and simplifying cross-border trade for B2C e-commerce. Our team of industry experts have developed an intelligent compliance platform that uses AI and machine learning to automate and simplify complicated tasks for retailers, logistics service providers, marketplaces, postal operators when they're sending goods international. Let's talk about an example. I think that may help sort of solidify what we do. To set the scene, Let's say I'm a US-based apparel retailer selling online to international markets. Trent, let's play with you. You're a savvy consumer that's based overseas. You're shopping for Black Friday sales on your smartphone and you see the T-shirt that you've been waiting to buy for a while. That T-shirt is on sale. And so what you do is you go ahead and order that online. Costs are, say, around $35 and you're ecstatic, right? You found the T-shirt that you wanted. Now, from an online consumer expectation point of view, It looks pretty easy on the website, right? You click checkout, you select the shipping method, you pay for the goods, and essentially the t-shirt turns up in a period of time. But for the retailer, this is where the fun begins. The retailer really needs to consider if that country that you're actually located in imposes any duties and or taxes on your shipment, which can be based upon the declared value of the shipment or how it's shipped being inco terms, And each country really has its own set of rules, regulations, and taxes for importing goods. So in the online checkout, the US-based online retailer really has two options. One is to charge these duties and taxes up front at the time of checkout, which is a process known as duties and taxes paid or DDP. Or secondly, the receiver can pay the duties and taxes at the time that the shipment's delivered. And this is really known as delivered at place or DAP, or DDU in the actual market itself. Most known apparel retailers are using DDP solutions as it really improves the consumer delivery experience as it doesn't have any hidden payment surprises at the time of receipt, which can impact the customer experience and ultimately reorders for that merchant in the US. So your question was, 
you know, how do we make it easy and where do we fit within the supply chain? So Aurora really supports and enables commerce for retailers. We can register, trade and manage evaluated tax payments and reporting into the EU and other countries. But more specifically, we're simplifying cross-border trading. We enable them with the tools that they need to classify their catalogue of goods, assign the appropriate HS code that customers uses for assessing duties and taxes. We actually calculate those duties and taxes so they can actually bring that into the online checkout at the time of purchase. And then we also check that the goods are not prohibited into the destination country. And we also check that the recipient can actually receive the goods because as we know, there's a lot of different embargoes and watch lists that are occurring around the world these days. So what we do is we really make this easy to be integrated via a suite of APIs that we publish. And we have very, very, very fast response times. You know, we have up to 5,000 calls and less than 100 milliseconds on some of the APIs. We have reliable uptimes, which is important when you're talking about trading 24-7 these days globally. And we have a high accuracy of, of HS code allocations, which really drives accuracy of payment for duties and taxes into that foreign destination country. This ultimately can save the retailer time, money and resources while improving the customer experience. And ultimately, by us simplifying that trade compliance and regulation process, it allows the retailers to focus on their business. And that's really to get profitable revenue growth within the market. Right, so that gives us a great example of what Aurora certainly does on the day-to-day -day and what some of your background is. And I know personally you've worked in the space for quite some time. You mentioned things obviously like you know, customs, tariffs, duties, all of that. And I'm curious, based on your perspective, how has the landscape of this cross-border shipment, cross-border travel of goods changed over the last five years? Yeah, another great question. If you think about the current state of the supply chain and, and where we've been in the last couple of years, it's really been, it's a very fluid environment. If you look at where the supply chain is, I would say it's definitely improving to where we've been previously, but I would still say there's sort of an inventory whiplash effect in play and higher supply chain costs. So to qualify that a little bit more, you think about during COVID, right? We had a lot of different market influences, economic influences impacting the supply chain. You saw that there was the availability of transportation, whether that be sea freight, air freight, trucking, you know, across the board was very much stretched because of limitations with labor, whether that be in the warehouse or whether that be with drivers. So the cost of actually of the transportation went through the roof during the COVID times. So that whole anomaly in the market would sort of change the environment in how people were sort of adjusting to getting goods into the country. Now we're starting to see that there's some, I won't say normality, but there's definitely, I'd say, a, more of a calming in certain areas within the supply chain. To give you an example, you've got warehousing and inventory management. During COVID, we couldn't get goods into the US as quickly as we wanted to. There's been that whiplash effect or oversupply of, of goods, which is now leading to excess inventory. This has also led to limited warehouse space and access to sort of to hourly workers, which has put an impact on costs within supply chain and margins. You know, from a port of entry point of view, 
to give you an example there was in the news a lot the west coast shipping ports of, of california and long beach it was very prevalent that there was lots of ships off the coast there that couldn't get their goods unloaded for multiple reasons and what we're starting to see now is that two things occurred one is that a lot of people moved their goods they wanted to diversify their risk so they moved their ports of entry over to the east coast such as savannah and so on we're still seeing backups occurring on the east coast where the west coast in la and long beach are now starting to subside and they're actually asking for more ships to come back in now they've got more more availability the example would be with california and long beach in january 2022 there's roughly about 109 ships off the coast this was down to about 10 ships in october whilst on the east coast savannah had i had a look yesterday and it was roughly about 47 ships off the coast there so we're still seeing that swing or that diversification of the strategy on ports of entry backing up on the east coast you know there's still if you think about impacts coming from ports of entry rail right rail is very much a, a foundational infrastructure for transport of goods and shipping containers within the us there's still the potential there for railroad transportation disruption which can impact container movement so we're keeping a very close eye on what occurs there additional things that we see within the supply chain diesel costs right are very relative at the moment us retail diesel pump prices were up from one year ago from an average of about 373 to 521 very recently and that's up 40 percent right on year on year which is impacting supply chains immensely at the moment hourly worker costs still remain high we're seeing large increases from some of the large national transportation carriers of six plus percent that they're talking about and this was compounded on from 2021 to 2022, where logistics costs were up 22%. So that cost structure within the supply chain is still high or still impacting profitability in those areas. But there's some silver lining, there's some good news, and there's some things that are coming down now quickly that is supporting, hopefully leading indicators, more normality on pricing within the supply chain. So if you think about shipping container costs, these uh, prices during COVID were astronomical. To look as an example, from China to the US West Coast in January 2022 versus October 2022 is down roughly about 63%. In January, it was roughly about $14,000 on average to get a container across. It's now about 5,200 around that mark, which is good because it needed to come down. On the East Coast, very similar. We're seeing for that same period of time of January 2022 through to October 2022, it's roughly down about 42%. So 16K down to 9K. So there's some good news there. Also, trucking spot rates are coming down, but we're also still seeing contract rates are still well above the 2019 or pre-COVID days. So there's some good news and some bad news, but overall, we're still seeing costs fairly high in the supply chain. You painted an amazing picture of pretty much the entire landscape there, and I'm sure our listeners will be appreciative of that. I did want to ask, because obviously Aurora assists retailers in cross-country movement of product, where are we seeing in terms of volumes, especially for maybe a B2C context? Are we seeing volumes up, down, flat, year over year? Where are volumes at, and how frequently can we expect maybe a product to be shipped from country to country? during this holiday season? 
Yeah, another great question. So if you think about the largest trading lanes that the US has, as well as globally, typically, if you look at trading partners for the US, you know, Canada from a B2C perspective is pretty much number one. And if you look at the relationship that the two countries have and the synergy in buying online and, and the transportation links that link the two countries together, it's very sort of sophisticated and, and, and easy to use in that sense. So we're still seeing a lot of, I would say, if you look at Black Friday sales, you do have a lot of Canadians shopping in the US for Black Friday. So we're continuing to see that as a stable lane. If you look at Europe and US to Europe, you're, you're talking about new regulations that came into effect around registering for trade in Europe called IOSS or that, that IOSS is essentially making sure that you're registered with the customs entities to be able to collect duties and taxes and so on. But that is something that is still continuing to be learned and still continuing to be adhered to and will only increase in its approach in the future because of the revenues that are being claimed by the European customs entities around duties and taxes. So the more that they're collecting and the more that they're providing regulation around these different countries, the more that they'll collect. So it's only going to be increasing. Aurora has a solution for that with IOSS registration, payment and reporting, which simplifies the whole process for, for retailers here in the US or for Canada that are sending into Europe. But to go back to answering your question around trade lanes, we still see strong volumes between the major trade lanes, like the top five trade lanes. We do see that there is some concern around the exchange rates and how that impacts the value on foreign exchange and so on on the dollar. But overall, we're aiming, hopefully coming out of COVID in a much more development manner. It's not as strong as it was prior to COVID hitting but that will take time to build more confidence in the market. And coming back to Canada, it's very much a symbiotic play that is very much still going to continue to grow. So we've talked a little bit about macro level impacts, some things that are happening certainly on the supply chain front, but I do want to focus on retailers for just a bit. So obviously using Aurora would be one such thing, but what are some best practices the most successful retailers are employing regarding movement of product and also what are some pitfalls that are out there that you see retailers maybe falling into? Yeah, if you think that the supply chain has a lot of moving parts at the moment, it's really balancing customer demand with demand planning. That's one of the tough challenges at the moment that we're seeing, let alone the market dynamics that we spoke about previously. Providing, if you think about best practices, I'd always have to go back to firstly is providing accurate trade compliance data and paperwork to streamline customs entry. This is such a big thing that some people overlook, but can impact the deliverability of larger shipments from a B2B point of view, or even smaller shipments on a B2C point of view. Accurate data, accurate declaration of the values, countries of origin. It's all very important to make sure that you're maximizing the deliverability of that shipment. I'd also say from a best practices point of view, we were talking about the supply chain and some of the challenges that were faced with you know, ports of entry and different distribution methods. Balancing the distribution, I think, is important. 
you know, trying to navigate the overcorrection in shipping ports and the volumes and aligning the updated inventory strategy. So the example there would be balancing out of the West Coast versus East Coast on a port of entry from a shipping point of view, and then looking at what is the cost to feed forward deployed inventory and for warehousing to meet consumer delivery expectations. That from a B2C point of view is easier said than done, but ultimately achievable. And the companies that are really aligning into or refining into what they're doing there are going to win. So the expectation from customers is fast and free. And the further upstream or further downstream you can get closer to that delivery point for that consumer, the cheaper that the transportation is going to be and the faster that you can get it there. So forward deployed inventory strategies are becoming very, very important in the market and balancing the distribution. The other thing that we're also seeing is the ability to speed up deliveries. So you think about many companies and many retailers have historically used two like large national carriers as a negotiation strategy more than anything, but the multi-carrier strategy is continuing to evolve. If you think about during COVID, we had carrier volumes that were restricted by different transportation carriers. There was peak surcharges that led to retailer frustration across the board. The actual power of the negotiation was held with the carriers where traditionally it may have been more held with the retailers. So what we're now seeing is the retailers are now looking at alternative multiple carriers, such as regional carriers. They're taking a lot of the market share in that area to support regionalized approach to deliverability, which ties into what I was saying before about forward deployed inventory. And secondly, we're starting to see the increase in more gig economy localized carriers supporting final mile delivery for retailers. So you look at Walmart and what they're doing with their localized deliveries, last mile deliveries, there's Target's very much doing it. There's a lot of these large brands, but it's also trickling into omni-channel players as well as online retailers that are starting to do this. So that's really to meet that fast and free consumer demand, which was sort of put on hold during COVID, right? There was a lot of Consumers basically said, okay, I understand that there's a lot going on in the supply chain and I'm okay with the delay. That's sort of gone away and it's sort of slingshotted back to, I want fast and free and I want it quick and I want it now. So you'll start to see a lot more strategies to support what that consumer wants, which ultimately buys the goods. And that's an interesting shift in consumer sentiment, certainly from, as you mentioned, the early days of COVID when consumers might have been a bit more understanding about that fulfillment end of things. I want to close out on this, Chris. I know as someone that's worked in the industry for some time now, as you look ahead to the next year, the next couple of years, what really excites you about things like product imports, about where things are headed in terms of retailers maybe streamlining country-to-country product movement? Yeah, this is the exciting discussion. I love this. Very passionate about the industry, very passionate about where it's going. And if you think about, it's really what is the IoT of things that's going to streamline capabilities and also increase profitability through automation. From a retailer point of view, a lot of that's going to be using carriers that could be doing autonomous 
driving as an example, right? That could be line haul, that could be using electric trucks. We see you know, various companies out there at the moment doing electric, doing autonomous. That's a huge cost saver, right? As I was saying before, with diesel going 40% up, you know, within uh, a short period of time, these are the things that are going to help sustainability of carrier operations in the future. Addition to that is automation of data and how people are using AI and machine learning to streamline efficiency and processes and reducing costs. So it's really trying to look at what are those things that simplifying process, which can ultimately improve product margin, can also reduce the cost impact and allow businesses to focus on core sales and driving more customer experience, which is ultimately going to support loyalty and support reordering. Some great things to look ahead to there. And Chris, I appreciate your time today. You gave us a fantastic view of how things are shaking out currently, both in supply chain and in the import game. We appreciate your time and thanks for joining us. Appreciate the time and thank you for having me. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. Well, we thank Chris for joining us once again. And, you know, I told him after the interview, I said, Chris, look, you answered questions I didn't even know I had. And that's when you know that you're covering some good content. So, especially his breakdown of the current state of supply chains, what's going on right now, what's going on with ports. I think it's fantastic insight from someone who's done it for a long time before Aurora. He was at the likes of Pitney Bowes and others, but also someone that is well tied in to the imports and exports market with retailers and, again, direct-to-consumer companies as well. So we head into the final segment of the Retail Focus podcast, our Looking Ahead segment. We look at Spartan Nash's third quarter earnings. Now, to look back a little bit, as I mentioned in the first segment, they saw retail comparable sales increase 8% for the quarter. Overall sales for them increased 10.8%. And impressive, the comps are, because this is not a company that Leighton nor myself are really all that bullish on in terms of their value proposition for the customer. Typically, Spartan Nash locations are a little bit higher priced, a little bit more at a premium, in part because they're located in a lot of smaller towns that might not have other grocery options. But the reason we are talking about their earnings call in our Looking Ahead segment is actually their wholesale sales. So if you're unfamiliar with Spartan Nash, only, oh, about 30% or so, a little less than 30% actually, of their net revenue comes from their retail stores. The vast majority of their net revenue comes from wholesale, either to independent grocers throughout the U.S., also to military bases and other food service providers. Now, their net sales for wholesale this past quarter increased 11.3%. And they said, look, a lot of that is due to the inflationary impacts, but also we are just moving more product. But here's the key. They actually made more money on what they sold because they saw a reduced rate of supply chain expenses. And that's important because we don't see a lot of retailers and we don't see a lot of wholesalers talking about that in 2022 terms. We've talked about supply chain expenses going up both in terms of labor and in terms of fuel costs 
And it's interesting that Spartan Nash has found that their supply chain expenses were actually down year over year based on sales versus 2021. So the reason I'm looking ahead at this is our retailers finally beginning to see a crest on supply chain expenses. We've talked the last few weeks and we talked even in this interview segment about the fact that we've seen the issues with supply chain wane a little bit. There's not that backlog of product this year that we've seen in previous years. There are other issues certainly with supply chain, but most of what we've heard lately is that supply chain expenses are going up in part because of the cost of fuel and in part because of the cost of labor. So Spartan Nash is seeing a decrease in these expenses as compared to sales. You wonder if maybe looking ahead to the next quarter or two, you're not going to start to see more retailers report reduced supply chain expenses. And this is important because while you might have product inflation, if you can find a way to pass on that reduced cost in the supply chain to the customer, that's going to benefit the customer, of course, but it's also going to benefit the retailer by being able to provide that value proposition to the customer. I think this was an interesting earnings call simply because of how they talked about the supply chain and how they were awful optimistic, not only in terms of their retail supply chain, but their external wholesale supply chain and things getting better on the expense front. That being said, I don't think we're going to see wages go down anytime soon. So it is really more about finding efficiency supply chain wise for retailers. And we'll keep a close eye over supply chain costs for all types of retailers, but particularly grocers heading into the fourth quarter and most of their fiscal fourth quarters and the fiscal first quarter of 2023 for most of the retailers. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus Podcast. Once again, I'm Trent saying thank you for Leighton behind the scenes. Coming up on next week's show, we're going to talk about diversity and inclusion as far as it pertains to retail investment and retail real estate investment. There's a lot of different angles to this, so we're excited to be joined by a couple of representatives. We're scheduled to be joined by one from ICSC and one from Collier's as well to talk about the dynamics there. And it's a very important topic, particularly as far as retail real estate and the retail industry as a whole is concerned. So that's on tap for next week. Until then, I hope you have a great seven days and thank you very much for listening. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.